Well, good morning. So uh, if you think I left my hat on by accident, I did not. I told my wife, don't don't start waving that you left your hat on. There's there's two reasons for it. First, it helps me see the screen. The other is it keeps you from being blinded. So um, for those of you who didn't know that. Um, so uh, I am going to try to wear my hat today. <clears throat> I can't figure out whether it's better to not be able to see the words on my screen or to be chasing the pieces of paper as they fly away. But I have both. So I might change midstream, depending on what's going on today. I was trying not to complain about the weather after the prayer of thankfulness for the sun and the wind. So um, I'm going, okay, yeah, good, good point. I liked it. It was good. All right. So we're going through the books of Hebrew, the book of Hebrews these days, uh, these weeks. This is our third sermon. And you probably noticed it's already been kind of heavy on the theological terms and the theology so far. Two weeks ago, Todd started us off and he said that Hebrews has a comprehensive Christology, which of of course means the study of Christ. Last week, Daniel told us about the hypostatic union, the dual nature of Christ, Christ's humanity and deity together. And we're going to continue with some of those important theological concepts or some additional important theological concepts today. But I have to comment that last week we also heard a great exposition of a popular TV show called Parks and Recreation. That was really great. Now, for those of you who are hoping for another exposition of a pop culture icon, I am the last person you want to give you an exposition of a pop culture icon. I have recently, however, discovered the pleasures of the Big Bang Theory. Um, I just love the awkward, imperceptive nerd. He, He reminds me so much of people I've known in my youth, like me. So anyway, that's, that's the, 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 all the pop culture uh, exposition you're going to get from me today. More seriously, let's turn to our passage today. And my first observation is, holy cow, there is so much in it. I mean, how are we going to cover all this? I was just, I was just had my eyes closed listening as Abby read, and I was just like, wow, there's a lot in here. Okay, so we're not going to get to it all. We only have one sermon to try to unpack some of it, and I've got only a couple of points. But before I do that, let me give you this kind of quick outline as I see the whole structure of it. So you'll kind of figure out where these two points are coming from. The passage starts with Psalm 95. And, and this is going to serve as a reference for the writer as he goes through this next section. And his, his main points, and if I had a screen, I would have an outline up here, but I don't. So you're going to have to imagine it. His points would be, don't fall away and enter his rest. Those are his two big points. And under don't fall away, he would talk about encouraging one another avoiding unbelief and disobedience, avoid failing to enter into his rest. He talks a little bit about what rest is. And then he says, enter his rest. And then he finishes with this famous couple of verses on the word of God. So that's kind of the whole structure and outline of this section, if you want to think about it that way. So we could, if we wanted to examine a number of things, we could talk about encouragement, rest, unbelief and disobedience, and the Word of God. That would be a lot to cover, all right? We can't do that. So we're going to cover two things, unbelief and disobedience, and the rest of God. So let's start with verse 7. It starts with that weighty word, therefore, all right? Of course, as you've heard us say many times from this pulpit, when that happens, we need to look back. What came before the therefore? And you're actually at a bit of a disadvantage here because we haven't talked about what comes before the therefore, all right? 
There are a few verses between where Daniel left off about Christ's dual nature and where we pick up our text today. And these first six verses of Hebrews 3 can be summarized by noting that the author is showing that Christ is superior to Moses. So that's what he's done in the first six verses. That's where the therefore is coming from. Christ is superior to Moses. And of course, this would be kind of a fundamental thing to say and to establish because this book was written to Hebrew Christians, Christians who were formerly Jews. Christ is superior to Moses. Therefore, and then he quotes Psalm 95, which is about the Exodus. Now, I don't know if that kind of means anything to you, but you know, we spent all last fall and last winter going over the Exodus, right? So this is so great that we get get there. But the reality is Psalm 95 is about the part of the Exodus that we didn't get to. All right. I was wondering if we were ever going to get them to the crossing of the Red Sea back in the fall. I just seemed like, oh man, we're never going to get there. But I knew we would and we did. But this is really kind of the rest of the story of Exodus. How the Israelites came relatively quickly to the border of the promised land. How God supplied for their needs by providing manna and quail for them to eat and water to drink. How he went with them by the pillar and cloud, and later his glory was found in the tabernacle that was moved with the Israelites in their journey. How they sent spies into the land, and how the majority report of the spies was that they would be killed by giants if they entered the promised land. The people did not believe that God, who had delivered them through to this point from the hand of Pharaoh and across the wilderness, could protect them, and they were not obedient to enter the promised land. And how God punished them by sending them to live in the wilderness until that generation of adults were all dead. In other words, they would not enter the land of milk and honey. They would not enter God's prepared rest. So all of these events in Exodus is what's summarized there in that text of Psalm 95 quoted in our book of Hebrews today. It ends with verse 11 in chapter 3. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, throughout the passage today, the author is going to return and grab snippets of Psalm 95. And up through uh, verse 4 in chapter 11, he's going to expound upon them and apply them to his readers. That exposition and application is first stated in the warning in verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there are not any of you, uh, not in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. It is expanded in Hebrews uh, 3.19. See that So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And it's summarized in chapter 4, verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. In some then, the passage is exhorting us, don't fall away, avoid unbelief and disobedience so that you may enter the rest of God. Now we need to pause for a moment. For some of you already, there may be something that's troubling you. What does the writer mean when he says, fall away? As most of you know, Hope Chapel is in a denomination called the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. Today, the important word there is reformed. As a church that ascribes to reformed theology, that means we think that the Bible teaches that humans are dead in their trespasses and sins that God is sovereign and elects unconditionally, that Christ died for the sins of those who are his followers, that followers of Jesus will respond to God's call, and that true followers of Jesus will never fall away. In a word, they will persevere to the end. 
That last statement is sometimes called the perseverance of the saints. The big theological word and concept today, the perseverance of the saints. Because the saints would be you. The saints aren't what the Catholic Church says saints are. The saints are you, if you're a follower of Jesus. Verse 12, notice what was said. Take care, brethren, that there not be any of you of an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Well, does this mean that a follower of Jesus, he calls them brethren, after all, can a follower of Jesus fall away from being a follower of Jesus? Well, some of our fellow believers who don't ascribe to Reformed theology would say, yes, that's what it means. But there are many, many, many passages in Scripture which indicate that believers will persevere to the end. So we think that the preponderance of Scripture is strongly in favor of perseverance. So what do we do with this passage and others that are going to follow in Hebrews that warn us against falling away? Well, one interpretation is that this is a warning to avoid a temporary falling away. Don't reject Jesus for a time and then come back. But in a later passage, the author will say one who rejects Jesus cannot come back. And this is really talking about missing the rest of God, not delaying the attaining of the rest of God. I don't think this is a temporary thing. So how do we in the Reformed tradition deal with this issue, this issue that many scriptural passages tell us that believers will persevere and others seem to warn against falling away? Well, I think the best understanding of this comes from a theologian named John Murray. I'm going to read a long quote from him. The scripture itself, therefore, leads us to the conclusion that it's possible to have a very uplifting, ennobling, reforming, and exhilarating experience of the power and truth of the gospel, to come into such close contact with the supernatural forces which are operative in God's kingdom of grace, that these forces produce effects in us which to human observation are hardly distinguishable from those produced by God's regenerating and sanctifying grace and yet be not partakers of Christ and heirs of eternal life. That was a long sentence. Let me read it again. The scripture itself, therefore, leads us to the conclusion that it is possible to have a very uplifting, ennobling, reforming, and exhilarating experience of the power and truth of the gospel to come into such close contact with these supernatural forces which are operative in God's kingdom of grace that these forces produce effects in us which to human observation are hardly distinguishable from those produced by God's regenerating and sanctifying grace, and yet be not partakers of Christ and heirs of eternal life. He concludes by saying a doctrine of perseverance that fails to take account of such a possibility and of its actuality in certain cases is a distorted one and ministers to a laxity which is quite contrary to the interests of perseverance. Indeed, it is not the doctrine of perseverance at all. That was a lot. And we're going to come back to it after we look at unbelief and disobedience and rest. Now, again, the writer of Hebrews is warning the people against disobedience and rest. We've already read a couple of verses about that. We could add verses 18 and 19. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. In verse 6 in chapter 4, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. So the writer is calling on the people of God to avoid disobedience and unbelief so that they don't miss the rest of God. And he tells us three things that we should do to avoid disobedience and unbelief. 
chapter, uh, sorry, verse 13, do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 14, hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Chapter 4, verse 2, the word must be united with faith. Now, from these ideas, I think we can begin to get an outline of what disobedience and unbelief mean in this context. The disobedience against which this author is warning is not simply a failure to obey. We all at sometimes, even oftentimes, fail to obey. This is true of all of us as believers, isn't it? We're all tempted by sin. We all sin, but we were not, in the final analysis, disobedient. But when one becomes hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, one does not simply fail to obey, one refuses to obey. And there is a very big difference. And this is the disobedience against which the author warns, a refusal to obey. Not a believer who recognizes their failure to obey, recognizes their sin, repents and praises God for forgiveness. No, this is a person who knows what they should do and does not do it. Often proudly, fiercely refusing to do it. It's a person hardened by sin. That's the disobedience against which the author is warning. Kind of reminds you of Pharaoh. Remember last fall, we talked about Pharaoh being hard. He was, he was proud in his defiance of God. That's what we're talking about here. That kind of disobedience. And unbelief is a failure of the word to unite with faith and a failure to hold our assurance fast. In other words, unbelief is not doubt. There are many people in Scripture who are beset by doubt. It's never deemed to be unbelief. We can think of Thomas who doubted the resurrection until Jesus showed him proof. He was not rejected because he doubted. Many writers of the Psalms express doubt about how or even whether God is and is working in the world. And many of them lament the apparent success of the wicked and those who hate God. But my favorite doubter in all of Scripture, my favorite doubter in all of Scripture is the father of the boy with an evil spirit whom the disciples could not cast out. I can, I can relate to this man. This is found in Mark nine fourteen and following. The disciples have been trying to cast out the demon from this young man, and, and they are unable to do so. Jesus arrives on the scene, and after sorting a few things out, picking up in verse 24 in Mark 9, and he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It is often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Notice Jesus doesn't criticize or reprimand the father. He heals his son. When the father expresses unbelief here, it is not the unbelief that the writer of Hebrews is describing. This father is expressing his belief, but recognizes that there are parts of him that are not really sure that Jesus has either the desire or the power to heal his son. In other words, he doubts. Unbelief in the context of the book of Hebrews is much, much, much more than doubt. For the original readers of Hebrews, it would have been a rejecting of Christ and a returning to the synagogue, a returning to their prior Judaism. It was then and still is now a willful turning of one's back on Jesus and walking away from him and going back to one's former beliefs. And that belief can happen when the world fails to unite with faith in our hearts and when we fail to hold our assurance fast. 
I can't help but think of a man in Chad that some of us know about. He's been in our prayers, and he's been in the prayers of the people here at church some. You might not know his story. His name is Bashara. Through the work of some missionaries, some of us support. Through the work of some missionaries, some of us support. Bashara came to know Jesus, and he lives in a Muslim country. He was not shy about his relationship with Jesus. He told everyone. And he had amazing experiences of the outworking of the Holy Spirit. I mean, just amazing things that we got to read about. And it's a very long story, but ultimately he was threatened with death. People actually came for him. God foiled their plot. And when that did not succeed, his family all gathered to try to convince him to walk away from Jesus and return to Islam. That would have been disbelief. But he didn't do it. He refused. He did not walk away and return to his old way of thinking. The word had been united with faith in Bashara, and he held his assurance fast. I don't doubt that he, I don't doubt that he doubts at times, right? Who, how could he not? The persecution he's had, there's no question that he had to have doubted from time to time. He had to wonder why God was allowing such things to happen for him, but he did not unbelieve. Unbelief is not doubt, which is good, because as with others in scriptures, we all will doubt from time to time. Unbelief is rejecting and turning one's back on Jesus. It is deliberate and long-term unfaithfulness. So here's the big question. Can this happen to you and me? I'm afraid I'm going to have to say yes. Any of us could ultimately decide to reject Christ, return to our old ways of thinking, and turn our backs on Jesus, resulting in unbelief and disobedience. But if we do, then the Word was never united with faith. In other words, we never really believed what we were saying about Jesus. And we did not hold fast to our initial assurance because we did not really have it. But let me reassure you, in the words of Romans 10:9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that if you're worried that your heart might be hardened to disobedience and your belief may morph into unbelief, then you're probably not the person who needs to worry. Those who are concerned that they may ultimately disobey and disbelieve are not those who ultimately disobey and disbelieve. Those who are concerned about such things guard their hearts. They nourish their faith in times of doubt and sin. They don't turn from the Father, but lean into the Father through Christ. In a word, they persevere. And so will you. And those who persevere look forward to and experience the rest of God. Looking at Psalm 95, the rest of God to which that refers is the land of Canaan, the fertile land of milk and honey to which God was taking the Israelites to live with them, to bless them, to be among them. In Deuteronomy 12, 9, it's called the resting place, the inheritance which God is giving them. What else does the writer say about the rest of God? In chapter 4, verse 4, he compares it to the resting God did on the seventh day. In chapter 4, verse 9, he uses a different word found only here in the New Testament and names it Sabbath rest. And in Hebrews 4.10, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. So the author here is comparing three types of rest. The literal rest the Israelites are going to have in the land of Canaan. God's own rest at the end of creation. But the rest that is meant to be the portion of those who are the followers of Jesus. What about this last rest, the one that is meant to be the portion of those who follow Jesus? 
Well, from other scriptures, I think we can deduce there's two types of this rest. One rest is that which is going to be fulfilled in our final resting place with Jesus, both before and after his return. And that rest is most completely comparable to God's own rest at the end of creation. But there's another rest that's available to us now. Just as the Canaan rest of the Israelites was meant to emulate and foreshadow the rest of God, so there is a rest for us that is a foreshadowing of the rest that we will have in Jesus. And that rest is best described in Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In the final rest that we will have after our deaths, there will be no anxiety. There will be rejoicing and peace. But Paul is telling us that we can experience a part of that now during this life. He doesn't, he doesn't say to rejoice when things are going good. He says rejoice and again rejoice. We are to rejoice in our present circumstances, as difficult as that might seem, especially, for example, over this past year. He encourages our gentle spirit to be known among all men, not just believers, but to all men. After all, the Lord is near. And he implores us to be anxious about nothing, but to pray with thanksgiving. And notice, when we do these things, then the peace of God, his rest, the peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds. Do you see this sustaining cycle of avoiding disobedience and unbelief in order to enter the rest of God? We said earlier that obedience, which is the opposite of disobedience, and belief, which is the opposite of unbelief, are the basis of perseverance. And they will keep us from missing the rest of God. But here we see in Philippians that the rest of God that is available to us now, the peace of God, will guard your hearts and your minds. Well, what happens when your hearts and minds are guarded? It sustains obedience and belief. So there's this cycle. There's this self-sustaining, if you will, or positive reinforcement cycle that leads to perseverance. And perseverance could actually be described as, as kind of this positive reinforcing cycle. And the result is obedience, belief, and rest. Now, the author concludes with this well-known passage. You've often heard this passage, and I suspect most often you've heard it quoted somewhat in isolation when someone's talking about the Bible itself or about Jesus who in John 1 is called the Word, and those would be good explications of it. But I want you now to think about the context. Because five times in our passage today, the author is referred to hearing God's voice. And now he concludes, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So you see, in this context, the word of God is, is either Scripture or Jesus or both, or maybe it's even broader than that. It's the entire activity, if you will, the, the whole influence, the whole action of God, the word of God in its broadest sense, which will ultimately reveal disobedience 
and unbelief to those who are disobeying and not believing. Now, we've really gone into some deep stuff today. Really deep. We looked at unbelief, the rejection of Christ, and disobedience, a, a willful refusal to obey. We have noted that this is not doubt and sin, which are things we all experience. And we've looked at the rest of God, both the peace of God, rest we can know now, and our future resting with God after death. And this brings me back to the quote I read earlier from John Murray. If there are those who have come into such close contact with the supernatural forces which are operative in God's kingdom of grace that such forces produce effects in them which to human observation are hardly distinguishable from those produced by God's regenerating and sanctifying grace and yet they are not partakers of Christ and heirs of eternal life, then how do we know we're not one of those? I've already said it, but it bears repeating. We know because in the midst of our doubt and sin, we don't move away from God, but we turn back to God. In a word, we know that we are not one of those whom Murray describes because we persevere. It may sound trite, but those who persevere are those who persevere. I know that sounds silly, but it's not trite or silly when we understand it more completely. That those who persevere, meaning those who in the midst of doubt and sin turn toward God and lean into him through Christ, are those who persevere, meaning those who find the peace of God that passes all understanding today and will be told in that final day that they are and have been a good and faithful servant. May it be so for all of us. Amen.